arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. The following is a potential ideal rendering of the future. Based on current trends and predictions, it is arguably just as possible as it is not. It is a future that could very well become real while you are still alive. All it takes is one new little piece to tip an entire scale of reality. Now, put yourself in the shoes of your future self and imagine this. It is some amount of time in the future. You are planning out a vacation with some friends and family. You are deciding which location you would like to visit in our solar system. Similar to how you would a cruise ship, you are picking which space travel line you would like to go on as well as what destinations you would like to stop at. Like tropical islands, there are planets that you can travel to where there are societies with economies thriving on tourism, research, and resource mining. Not only that, but these new other planetary settlements have allowed for the discovery of new sources of nutrients, fuel, and elements that are now integrated into our everyday lives. The massive practical value provided by these new resources means that the issues created by things like fuel emissions and power requirements here on Earth have been resolved. What was once known as global warming is now a lesson taught in history classes. With greater resources and limited energy restrictions, the rate of technological advancement has continued to compound while the concern of artificial intelligence becoming uncontrollable has been properly dealt with. Government programs specializing in the research, understanding, and regulation of AI have been implemented. Like any other potentially threatening technology or weaponry, the proper regulations were put in place before it was too late. AI now integrates cohesively into human life in an increasingly symbiotic relationship. It has freed up much of the wasted time in researching and understanding complex issues. It has allowed us to answer questions we never thought to even ask, to innovate in directions we never knew existed. The relationship between human understanding and technological innovation has become so interwoven that evolution is now spilling over into new dimensions of interplanetary bionic life. Evolution is compounding at a 10x multiple, 10 years is like 100, 100 years is like 1000, and so on. This alongside developing anti-aging medical treatments means you are aging at a dramatically reduced rate proportional to time. Because by the way, you're whatever age you are right now, plus about 100, give or take. Currently, you're on track to live a longer, healthier life than any conceivable age of the past. As a result, you will experience the most diverse, dynamic, and unique existence ever known to human. You and nearly everyone you know are happy with life, and it is not corny or weird to feel that way. For the first time known in history, the entire body of humanity is functioning together cohesively, like one big super machine. There is an underlining attitude that when everyone wins, the individual wins. Violence and war is minimized, and empathy and kindness grow stronger and stronger. Longer lifetimes, greater understandings of the universe and our role within it, and more time to focus on self-care and meaningful work all allow for a greater sense of self-purpose. We now recognize that life is simply what you make of it, that our purpose is merely to enjoy everything as best we can, while providing as much honest value to others along the way, so to ensure that everyone can do the same. Life is beautiful. Humanity is happy. Any conceivable heaven would fall short of this. Okay, now back to the present. That future just described is certainly optimistic, but between now and then, anything could happen. And if even a sliver of any of that comes to fruition, imagine the possibility. First, let me say, I don't doubt the capacity of humans for invention. 
Is such a future of traveling and inhabiting the solar system possible? Yes, yes, yes. With a huge caveat, the human equation, human nature is the overriding issue no matter what the regulation or no matter what the technology. One big super machine? Sounds very idealistic and a bit naive to me. Humans are complex with their own personal agendas, as we shall see as the ice of Triton evolves. And now, back to our story. An old man prattles on about the waters of oblivion, confounding Cobb. Cobb hears mention also of the Sazerin, one of the worst prisons in the solar system. Not a good prospect for one half. The Narwhald is an animal that eats humans and resides in the Sarazen. Godspeed, Harry Cobb. Here is the Ice of Triton by Robert P. Fitton, starting now. Chapter 9 Inside Station 32 on Triton, the artificial daybreak broke cold and hazy. I was alone on a villa balcony overlooking an expansive sandy pit surrounded by rolling hills packed with habitats. The earth lifts and the men in the surface haulers work like ants in a colony below. My thoughts drifted to Bernie Sorrell. Kurchenkov may have been paid by Sorrell, and I thought it likely that he bought the pytoids. I wasn't sure how Wiley and the Bureau fit into the scheme. Section 5 probably suspected Alder and Severinsen, or even Levinsky. All the evidence added up to nothing. But I did know one thing. I did not want to be doing time in the Sazerin. People rotted in that prison because there was no law enforcement on Triton. It was the Triton mentality that provided a perfect template for an assassination. I faced the Stucco Villa. Where was Kuchenkov? I surmised she was on the run. They would either arrest her or kill her. An inner door opened and guards in one white-piece Sukos carrying pulsar rifles rounded the far corner. Come with us! Where? To the Sazerin? Shut up! He shouted and swung the butt of his rifle at me. I ducked and he missed. Back inside! I waited for him to smack me as I entered a narrow hall that led to a white tiled foyer with wide leafy plants and lavender hebons. A waterfall smaller than the cantina's cascading water, a huge sunken room with floppy recliners and linear communication windows. Several fans spun high above in the wood rafters. In the center of the room, a teak table with matching chairs was set with thatched blue placemats, orange ceramic plates, and clear long-stem glasses. The air was cooler in this darkened room, and three tapered white candles flickered in a slight breeze. McCabe, you've arrived, said a tall, heavy-set man in a deep, raspy voice. The left side of his face was rebuilt with a red silcoplast, glossy facade, and he had enhanced black eye scanners. Sam Branson. You got it. His large rough hand enveloped mine. Lucky guess. Sit down, he said, snapping his fingers. Three men clad in white sukos carried silver food trays as they swooped into the room. I was dragged across the floor and shoved into a table recliner across from Branson. His reconstructed cheekbones looked mechanical. The servants loaded our plates with marinated chicken and fresh green vegetables. A pecored wine, distinctly metallic red and pungent, was poured from an amber silcoplast bottle into our long stem glasses. My job, gentlemen, is overseer for Station 32 Internal Improvements. The current project was slated for an 18-month duration. 
I have four months to complete the inner road system in this sector. Why would you bring me here, Mr. Branson? He smiled, crunching the tissue around the silicoplast, held the wine goblet, and looked me over for a few seconds before he spoke. I've been asked by friends of mine to talk to you. Friends? Yeah. I see. He raised his glass. Two solutions. A solution is only valid to winners, I said quickly. Branson was about to speak, but hesitated. He rubbed his finger along the smooth, rebuilt silcoplast. Spoken like a true bureau man. I sipped the wine. Why did you need Nora Kurchenkov to bring me here? Why not just invite me to your habitat? McCabe, if she thought you were involved in all this, she would have killed you. Involved? Suffice to say you're alive, and you made the intrusion into the Buntas. She handed you to me. Now she's gone. She knows what I'll do. Who killed Bernie Sorrell? I said loudly. And why? He laughed loudly. Bernie Sorrell. Who the hell is Bernie Sorrell? Come on. I said, setting down the goblet. You have no interest in a man murdered, as you say, into a place where I intruded into. Who are you working for, McCabe? Why do you ask? You're a skilled debater, but your skills will be of little value if you don't tell me what the hell I want to know. I sipped the wine and allowed him to think. At least half a minute passed before he stood. He pushed his chair back and stormed around the table and pointed at me. His bloodshot eyes bulged. Let me put this as simply as I can. Someone killed Jenna Belkin because she had become a threat. I'm sure you have enough background on this, McCabe, to have some thoughts on the matter. Where is my friend, Rennie Colburn? I have no idea. How about Mark Belkin? I don't know about Belkin either. Who killed her, Branson? Who killed Jenna Belkin? You tell me, smart face. Cartel? He started around the table and stopped. I'm not sure. You already don't know. She used the cartel to advance her career. But you're a director. I know about the director, Mr. Branson. He's about to become commissar. Alder isn't clean. Ha <laughs> ha. He laughed and shook his head. The flesh moved under his rebuilt silcoplast. Felix Alder is the last man who should be in that position. What about the cartel? Branson closed his eyes and nodded. Who planted the pytoids? His dark eyes opened gradually. Where are you going with that one? I was sure he hadn't talked to Sorrell before Kurchenkov killed Sorrell, or he wouldn't be grilling me. Who would need to kill Jenna Belkin? Someone who would benefit from her death. I don't think you understand my question. Need. Need is a necessity. His brow creased next to his solid red cheek. Ah. Need. Alder. Cartel. Even specific persons in the cartel. While they use Belkin, they would not need her dead. Very good, McCabe. Who in the cartel? Junko? Natalis? Or even Levinsky himself. I feel the squeeze, McCabe. Like I was brought in here and used. How so? We used pytoids as a part of planetary construction. I was upset with myself and not having thought of that possibility. Anything stolen? Yeah. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Inventory levels were changed 11 days before Belkin's tracer vaporized. That stuff was in a restricted area. Then he bit his lower lip. I've told you too much. Sorrell was snooping around here about a month ago. Now look, you're here to give me a... Chapter 10
Montefi thugs in black thermosucos, one behind me and one ahead, escorted me on foot from Branson's villa. At first, I thought I was headed for the white construction trailers along the sandy ridges overlooking the roadwork below. The temperature had warmed, but the air had a gnawing chill. With simulated daylight, the ice mountains were now hidden outside Station 32. I traipsed through the sand and understood why there were no armed outbreaks on Triton. People disappeared. They might push me until I cracked, and I wondered whether Calvin had recovered the C-Zip. Earthlifts, carving outlines of the new road through the valley, passed by me while other men surveyed the land with portable geosync units. I hoped Branson would just extract information from me in that prison. I did not relish just freely marching into the prison pit, and the prospect of not leaving the Sazerin unnerved me. I glanced at the two pulsar rifles aimed at my head, and I tried to figure out Jenna's death. Sorrell was the key because he more than likely procured the pytoids. But why would Kirchenkov kill him? My thoughts shifted to Alder. Alder wanted Jenner out of the way because of his own involvement in her career. If made public, the information would ruin his aspiration to become commissar. Sorrell was a cartel man who more than likely knew bureau people, and that could implicate other bureau people such as Phil Severinsen. Had Severinsen engineered this whole plot by using low-level contacts? The guard waved his pulsar toward an orange silkoplast ramp that spiraled upward to the top of the mound. I reluctantly started up the ramp, and I tried to make sense of everything. The cartel was still suspect. What if Levinsky had ordered Sorrell to kill Jenna Belkin because his companies had benefited from resources? And now Jenna was retiring with the knowledge of his resources' involvement. I stared at the Buntus habitat spread over the hills to my right. One fact in my head would not go away. The cartel knew Branson's company had pytoids. Behind the force fence was a gray silcoplast hump with an open hatch. A rotten stench permeated upward. The guards stepped back but aimed their rifles at me. An older guard with a chiseled ruddy face had a cigarette stuck in the corner of his mouth. Welcome to paradise, slob. It's been some mistake. The rough-cut man tilted his head back and laughed. Yeah, you made it. Climb inside. A white-bearded man with brilliant milky blue eyes stared at me with a mystic intensity. He slowly shook his head. The mound opening had no ladder. What is that, a chute? Put him in. Three of them approached me from behind and lifted me into the air, but the old man shuffled toward me before we reached the opening. His eyes were as bright as Neptune, and he cupped his wrinkled hands over my ear. His breath was acrid like an empty Jaffron cup, and he whispered clearly, Waters of oblivion. I don't understand. Hey, humans. His eyes slowly closed, and he stepped back. Your friends now. What do you mean by that? Before he could answer, they unloaded their green pulsar beams and vaporized him into an ash cloud. Then they carried me over to the hole. The other guard squinted, crunching his cigarette. You're a dead man now. They released me. I shot into the darkness. My back grazed the tube, but the old man's smoking ashes above lingered before my eyes. As I popped into the warm, dank air, an upper light slit blurred, and I landed hard enough to push the air from my lungs. I crashed on top of a little man with a strong body odor, and I rolled onto a gritty surface. For a couple of minutes, I was stunned, but slowly regained my footing. Someone moaned in the distance, but forms were indefinite in this low gray light. Slits surrounded the rim about ten meters above me. 
cast an eerie silver light below. My shoulder ached as I hobbled within a stench bad enough to make me gag. What is this? Another voice echoed back. What is this? Several more men cackled. Then I pressed my lips. Damn. You lost, brother. The men were scattered like cattle in a huge stall. For a few seconds I coughed in the rancid air. I want to speak speak to somebody somebody in charge. (laughs) This time the whole group produced a series of grunts and laughs that quickly faded. Idiot. No one is in charge. Is there a head administrator? The man, now visible, was over a full head taller than I. His clothes looked as if they had been sliced with a pulser. They dump you in here. If you tackle the odds, then they let you in the yard. His skin had a mottled, moon-like appearance within a speckled beard. I don't understand. Should I tell him, brothers? I spoke over the grumbling. I need to know how to get out. The animal. You never know when. They set him free in here. Animal? Bred as a snake. With fourteen legs and suction screechers. Can chop apart a man's arm in half a second. Sure. I sat down against a huge silcoplast column. I'm not listening to this nonsense. When the bottom gates slide upward, the narwhal scrambles forward with a hunger that needs to be satisfied. They leave him without food for three days. He is a carnivore. Sir, I've never heard of such a breed. You will, brother. You will. I did not take his story seriously and just stared into the morass. My shoulder was better, but still hurt. I stretched my body. Once upright, I crossed over men sprawled in clusters on the dirt. What about food? Buntafi drop it once a day from above, mumbled some unseen soul. I imagined the fight when that happened. I walked deeper into the pit, and the sickening air kept me coughing. Men lined up to catch a glimpse of the outside through slits along a distant wall. Killing me would have been easy. They would let me rot. And the Sarazen. Darkness and hunger combined with fermented anger. I was sure either the cartel or Alder had engineered Jenna Belkin's death. Did the old man's alluding to the waters of oblivion mean they were hiding somewhere? Or did it mean they were both dead? The wretched air had dissipated, or maybe I was acclimating to this hell. Above the smooth and tiled silcoplast walls, the slits were now tinted orange, similar to the last sunset rays. Climbing those walls to freedom was an impossibility. An outer but vacant courtyard was visible through a four-inch slot within several meters of the silcoplast and was quiet and empty. Escape was only possible past the heavier black grates in the tunnel. Yet, they had spun that story about the narwhal slipping through the open grate every three days. I wasn't sure whether I was being conned. I asked about Rennie, Calvin, and Mark Belkin as I wandered around the gray-lit pit. This was only one of many pits around the courtyard. I wondered about Calvin's C-zip. Was it wedged between the supports back in the Buntus or safely in the Matterhorn? Perhaps Krichenkov found it. In the catacombs of that C-zip, was a plethora of evidence gathered at the tenement. I surveyed the silver-blue courtyard light across the pit. Neptune and the ice mountains must have been overhead. You are a new one, 
said a man who approached my right. He was about my size, but thinner. I have survived fifty openings. What do you mean? Fifty times the grate has been open. The longest was Hanson. He was past eighty. But they weren't sure. I liked him. He had the knowledge of the ages. He spoke of time before humans. And I remember the day he died. Never thought he'd be consumed. Is there any way out of here? You are fated, my friend. When you enter, you do not leave unless they take you. Take where? From, from above. They lower the sled and take you. Hanson, he screamed in pain. Where are the waters of oblivion? His grin was slowly formed and remained stuck on his face. Do you value your existence or another? What do you mean? They say that the waters are the waters of time itself. That makes no sense. How do I get out of here? You will die here. If I ever get out of here, I'll destroy this place. He was consumed by the darkness and did not hear me. Then he drifted into the shadow silver light near the grates. Maybe the Narval was real. I tightened my brow and exhaled. As I turned, someone jammed an open hand out of my jaw. Before I could act, somebody else locked my arms and they pinned me against the wall. A raspy voice shouted from behind. Tell us who you are. Who are you? Someone swung a fist into my stomach so hard I keeled over. Tell us, shouted another man. McCabe. Several blows to my cheeks and nose produced blood across my face. Tell us who you are we will get you out. Where is Rennie Colburn? Who sent you, McCabe? Was it Severinsen? Who's your contact? Section 5 of the Bureau. I, I have no contact. My ribs ached, and I tried extricating myself from the two men as I smacked blood around my tongue. My body tensed with another punch to my head. You're beating a man who knows nothing. So you claim. What were you looking for in that habitat? We were tracked coming in. The signal was from that habitat. Rennie. Rennie should have told you that. You think too much, McCabe. You have an identity you're hiding. That would be risky. Risky for some men, a challenge for others. More blood meandered down my unshaven cheeks. I am William McCabe. Where are you born, McCabe? Earth, Duluth, Minnesota. You sound like an intra. Listen, I know who I am. Whoever was on my left released his grip. Then he jabbed his long finger at me. Do you think you could survive the Narval, McCabe? It's only a matter of time while you're here, and then you die in excruciating pain. I glanced at the murky grate. In some odd fantasy, I pictured myself leaping on top of this unworldly creature and riding out of the prison. I shook my head at the thought. I have nothing to hide, and you can tell whomever you sent that that's the truth. Listen, we have connections. I hung my head, and a rough hand lifted my chin. Cave, we can get you to freedom. Just tell us what you know. Was it Levinsky? I coughed through the blood. I was trying to find answers just like you. I twisted onto the dirt and tripped over several lethargic men. Sooner or later, Cave, you'll be dead. Disease or starvation doesn't get you, then the Naravel will. I will give you a regard. What? To Mr. Alder. Bureau. The Bureau has many rooms, sir. I barely saw them leave. Twenty meters ahead, beyond an open dirt flat, the worn grate scraped the walls as it moved upward. Three men disappeared inside. Was the Narval somewhere beyond the tunnel? 
I visualize my fantasy of riding the animal on its back through the grate. Maybe that was just possible. If I could just hold on, I would not be eaten alive. Chapter 11 The shadows fell across the eerie light and the silhouette forms of broken men scattered over this subterranean dirt hill they called a corsor. I was agitated, roughed up, and unable to sleep. The horrendous air was stagnant at night. Men snoring and the painful whimpers in the darkness were like the repeating sounds of mournful breakers offshore. The C-Zip was critical to the investigation. Sound etchings inside the C-Zip catacombs were aligned next to blood types and genetic scans that would yield more information about just who was inside that habitat. The blood pattern on the banister may have been my own imagination, or perhaps Rennie or Mark Belkin may have tapped out a message. If so, was such a message related to the ravine packets and the death of Commissar Nevis? Between attempts at sleep, I reviewed every aspect of this case from the time that Mark first asked that I meet him on the cruise liner. I had never spoken with Jenna, and I wondered if that meant anything. Mark had mentioned that he wanted to talk about Jenna's personal career matters. What could be suspicious about meeting them on the cruise liner? And Angelique. Was she brought into this? Wiley's Latin phrases bothered me. Were the Latin phrases more than just his flamboyance? And that number he rattled off repeated in my head, and I was sure it meant something. Why not just tell me? I associated with something on Mars, but was unable to access it. The two moonhoppers that led me to Grizz were on that liner. And Grizz, a man from the Mars polar region, Bars, was on that freighter specifically to murder me. Why would someone order my murder? I hadn't thought about that. I turned over in the dirt and faced a prisoner's back, moving up and down as he breathed. The suspects were the same. Cartel, the Bureau. I didn't have a long list of enemies, unless it was someone I put in a detention colony. I started thinking about my successful prosecutions when I was with the Bureau, especially Paper Rose. I nailed a group of 11 people who were funneling droits from prospective colonists on Venus Colony 7. When confronted, a protracted hostage situation developed in the high-rise above the habitats in Colony 7. I personally led the attack team into the building and saved 1,800 colonists from a potential pulse concentration explosion. John O'Neill promoted me over Phil Severinsen. I slowly shook my head and fell asleep. I awoke, imagining Angelique's sparkling green eyes. I was unsure how much time had passed, but I questioned why she and Valencia just happened to be on that ship. She had used a cover that related to the most important event in my bureau career. I thought for sure that I had been suckered, and I wanted to know why. Yet she had told me they were booked well in advance. In the same thought, I dreamed about making love to her, and smiled for a moment in this garbage pit. Why did someone try and kill me on the freighter? Unless it was Alder. Alder or Severinsen may have known I was meeting Mark and Jenna. Whoever plotted to blow up Jenna's tracer wouldn't want me investigating her death. That was a fact. Whoever killed her may have sent those two men to eliminate me. I lay on my back. The moist, coarser dirt was cool against my suko as I clasped my hands behind my head. I imagine Angelique walking from the balcony in the Adriatic Hotel. Her sheer teal gown 
revealed more than enough of her slim, proportioned frame to make me sit up on the bed. In my mind, the ocean breeze chilled my skin. She shook her dusty hair, thick and trimmed. Somehow she pinned it up, revealing a smooth neck. Her skin was flawless, and she smiled, gently swaying her body as she approached. I took her hands, and she maneuvered her knees onto the soft bed. My lips met her lips. The subtle contours and the warmth of her tender body mixed with the scent of a certain sweetness only she wore. I slipped the thin gown over her shoulders. I was about to tell her that I loved her. A loud movement, as if a huge rock were being rolled onto a gritty surface, shook the area. They scrambled behind me. Others ran toward the upper area and cowered against the silcoplast walls. They screamed out the Narvald's name. I backed up the Corsair Hill, but didn't see this unworldly animal, and was soon bunched up against the rear wall with dozens of petrified men. A deep, guttural slurp emanated from the great area, and then a pounding, like horse teams breaking loose, shook the dirt. An ensuing silence was followed by a low, melancholic wail echoing off the thick walls. By the open grate, two huge saber teeth framed an indefinable mouth in iridescent blue-green eyes with dark pupil slits glowing in the opening. The creature, its head as large as a forward skull of a tracer, nudged forward. It focused on the corsair and its wail across between a carnivorous mountain lion and a flesh-eating snake produced goosebumps along my arms and legs. The creature slithered across the dirt flat and its cavernous razor-teethed jaws incessantly opened and closed as it drooled a silvery slime onto the dirt. It had a thin white mane along its slimy skin, steel-blue tubular shell. Each leg was folded upward, but the hoofs outlined the bottom. Five meters away, on the flats just outside, the narwhal reared and the haggard prisoners gasped. Up front, one of the men attempted to move laterally, but lost his footing. The creature lunged with amazing agility and speed. Its massive jaws snapped, and with a quick crunch, silenced the prisoner's screams. If I had my pulser, I would have vaporized this monster. I circled left as the creature chomped through the man's body as if he were a subterranean bar snack. Bloodied and twisted skeleton debris was scattered across the dirt. It panned back toward us and poked its oversized, vicious head inside. No one fought back as it snapped its jaws. But my anger, with this planet's indifference, gave me the courage to march forward. The agonizing bellows provided a backdrop to a squeamish hell I could never envision. The Narvald, seemingly at random, had an endless feed supply and munched away at the ripped human limbs. It was preoccupied and did not see me grab the chiseled silcoplast frame as I climbed toward the cross rafters. The rotting human flesh, now evident and more pungent from the attacks, seemed to make the creature wilder. Its teeth rummaged through the dead as the remaining mass of humanity moved in unison along the wall. I grasped my right hand on the silcoplast beam and swung like a monkey over the flats. My age and being out of shape did not hinder my traversing the length of the flat toward the grate. I set my feet on the upper lip and balanced three or four meters above the grate. Such a creature may have been part of some intra-borderline experiment. For ten minutes it loitered near the courser. Maybe its voluminous tube-like body 
required prodigious amounts of food. Cries for help and painful wails resembled a continuous one-sided battle or contest, and the brutality tore into my soul. I did not blame the creature as much as I did the sorrows and authorities. Portions of its slimy blue belly rumbled at the coarser opening as if it were digesting what it had just eaten. The full belly, it might have been stymied or slowed enough for me to leap on it and grab its thin mane. The ensuing silence bothered me more than the gruesome carnage of the past few minutes. Prisoners were silent, and so was the creature. At least a minute had passed before it even moved, and then it was just to the side. Bubbling, belching, and a slow hiss indicated it was digesting its meal. Maybe the attack was over. I counted eight stubby legs when the narval backed onto the flats. As I prepared for my move, I was confident I could accomplish my plan. The hard part was jumping. The creature twisted its body like an old railroad car at a turnaround. I faced its glazed aqua eyes, but it didn't see me. My heart pounded when it waddled forward. I would surely die if I didn't try this. Its head was slightly dipped as it approached the grate. Even in its satiated state, how could I not startle it? I would have to lower myself almost imperceptibly on its back. Now I questioned whether I could really do it. Its gargantuan head and eel body swiveled through the grate. Like a trapeze artist in a circus, I swung my body from the beams. My weight hung heavy on my forearms and shoulders as the Norval lumbered into the tunnel. I lowered myself to the bottom of the grate frame, my boots centimeters from its back, and I slowly released as if I were pressing heavy weights until my feet were on the creature. For a second, nothing happened, and then it shook as if it were dislodging an insect. I relinquished my grasp on the frame and fell forward. It screeched when I grabbed the mane. Like a cowpuncher riding a runaway horse, I pulled its long, thin hair tight as it raced down the darkened passageway. It squealed again and tried to shake me loose. I ducked my head as it neared a bright opening. My eyes stung from the light as it left the tunnel. Then it sprung forward in the moist air toward a long, rectangular pool. The narval, an unworldly creature of enormous stamina and strength, reared upward. I was flipped back, but managed to cling on like a surfer on a board, traversing a powerful wave. I rolled into the cool water that saturated my clothes. For a few moments I went under, but the creature spun and I was caught in a surge of water. My first impulse was to swim. But as my head popped above the surface, huge splashes, like bombs from an ancient airplane, produced hefty waves. At least five, maybe more, Narvald now bobbed around in the pool. With ferocious strokes, I swam for the edge. They were almost at my feet, the currents drawing me under, and I scrambled onto the slab. I rolled, flipped up, and sprinted to the sidewall, where I hoisted myself up to the joint where the silcoplast slabs met. But I was only a few meters off the ground. I slid along the slab edge as they shot like pitoid torpedoes from the pool. Then they flung themselves against the wall. I caught my hands on the next threaded joint. They gnashed their huge teeth and grunted. I pulled myself out of reach, but had to slide along the thin ledge toward a balcony at the far end. If I lost my balance, I would fall into the pool. The narvald slithered below and occasionally leaped upward as they seemed to trace my every move. From my perch, 
I counted six of them spiraling upward, snarling, and then splashing back into the water. Were they fed more humans in this pool? Edging toward the balcony, I remained obsessed with the sea zip lodged in the habitat rafters. What would I do with that catacomb data once I retrieved it? That zip data was meaningless if I never made it the 15 meters to the balcony. Sweat crept down my forehead and stung my eyes. My balance was affected once the salty mixture blurred my vision. I slid faster toward the long balcony span. With all the commotion below, I was stunned no one had seen me along this upper wall. Why was I thinking about Mark's call on my zip as I faced those carnivores in the pool? I almost thought he had known something. If he weren't my friend, I would have thought he was involved deeper in Jenna's demise. I was near the balcony edge, but once I scaled the wall, I still had to break free of this prison. The breeze from the narval lunging at my feet wandered across my legs. The commotion resembled boiling water in a cauldron. My eyes stung as I slid along the lip. The balcony and the adjoining halls were visible, but there were no guards up here. Two men walked into the corridor when I was within meters of the wall. They glanced at the balcony and then started down the stairway. I reached the half wall and clutched the support, and threw myself over the rough-edged top and onto the shiny green silcoplast floor. I pivoted onto the heavy block-lined corridor, lighted by flared overhead hebons. Men conversed down the stairs as I stood. Someone yelled from behind. You! You! I leaped left and slid across the floor as pulsar fire cut the corridor silcoplast. An adjacent staircase led below, but I chose to head upward. More men down the corridor called for additional support as I clawed up the stairs to an open portal tower. The fresher air was evident, but I soon realized my only option was out the portal slits. I covered my eyes from the outside light as the Buntus habitat rose materialized beyond the prison buildings. To my right, the huge Corsair mounds jutted upward. Long cables were connected to six towers at girders. Straight down from this tower was a drop of 50 or 60 meters to a larger body of water nestled within a rocky basin, which I believed was connected to the Narval pool. Although I did not hear the guards, they would soon realize what I had done. I crawled out the portal, gripped the tower's corrugated roof edge, and balanced my feet on a wide, gritty ledge. The wind pushed against my wet clothing, and my hair flapped. As the lower stairs vibrated, I hoisted myself up and slithered across the silcoplast toward a cable attachment atop the roof. This pinnacle provided me with a stunning view. Behind me, opposite from the buntas, was the actual edge of Station 32. Huge geodesic supports tapered downward to the planet's surface. To the left, one of four nanocarb cables from this tower angled down to a long, adjacent flat-roof building. I ripped off my sucrete and looped it over the cable. The upper platform shook as an undetermined contingent reached the top of the stairs. I gripped my overlapped sucrete, leaped into the air, and whipped down the cable at an unsettling velocity. I worried less about the impending pulsifier and the smoldering edges of my sucrete now scraping furiously against the metal cable. A portion of the sucrete ripped several dozen meters above the ground, and some distance from where the cable connected to the building. Like an out-of-control tracer, I violently rocked from side to side down the cable. So I neared the building, blue pulsar beams, followed by a high-pitched pulsar drone, 
exploded against the front wall. My sucrete finally snapped and my stomach sunk. I was in mid-air, but the momentum carried me toward the mammoth gray structure's roof. I tucked before I careened across the smooth, moist silcoplast. I spun like a revolving top, almost losing consciousness, and I came to rest on the open roof. My upper left arm was scraped and blood soaked through my inner sucrete. I stumbled to my feet and held my shoulder and arm as I slipped across the slick roof toward a series of bumps perhaps 300 meters distance. What I had perceived as bumps became glossy pale green hoods housing the mixers designed to bring fresh air into the stagnant structure. I spotted the ice mountains once I reached the curved resonating units. Fatigue and escape left me drained, but I had to go forward. I half smiled when I realized I had come this far. Chapter 12 A cool, gentle breeze irritated the chafed skin on my cheek. Neptune, that omnipresent aqua ball, hovered over the white chiseled mountains. The stars, scattered across the Station 32 dome, were bright even near the planet, and the Buntus Hebons twinkled across the landscape. The Matterhorn was at least 15 kilometers away. My shoulder ached but was manageable as I pushed back against the mixer hood. I wasn't sure whether they had forgotten about me or just couldn't track me down. Then I walked toward the roof edge in the silver-blue light, maintaining my footing on the squishy silcoplast. I squinted and my eyes watered as I neared the edge. I never liked heights, although I always seemed to find myself in positions above the ground. This building was at least 50 meters high. In the lighted courtyard below, soldiers, probably Buntafi, drilled incessantly. Leaders called out cadences, audible even at this height. I rolled my eyes and returned to the mixers. This time I walked completely around the huge hoods. Trying to gain access within these oversized spinning fans was impossible. I walked a few meters from the hoods and thought it strange I saw no entry to the building. I retreated back across the roof but it had only gone a few dozen meters and the hum of traces broke the night stillness. Maybe the guards in the prison or tower had alerted the troops. I broke into a steady jog, scanning the silcoplast for any opening, seam, or passageway as I ran. Two tracers, I Hebon sweeping the flat roof, rose over the courtyard side of the building. I wanted to hide, but this open roof allowed neither safety or security. Over my left shoulder, one of the intense Hebons caught me running. Whether I lived or died in a pulsive burst merely depended on how valuable I was to them. I slipped a couple of times in the Ihebon beam as the old man's words about the waters of oblivion echoed in my head. Then the zip channel blasted through the trace's hum. What would I do once I reached the roof's edge? Station 32's geodesic girders revealed hundreds of tiny air spheres aligned in construction arches. I had at the most a few minutes to evade the tracers. I tried to catch my breath and wondered if someone had prevented Mark from divulging what he knew about Jenna's activities. About five meters below, a downward spiral walkway tapered away from the building. Blue pulsar beams melted the silcoplast along my heels as I sprinted. With a tremendous leap, I extended my arms at the edge and flew into the darkness. My stomach lurched as if I were on an old amusement park ride on Earth. I hit with a force strong enough to knock the wind out of me. I slid downward as the dome curved inward toward the building, 
and light brightened hundreds of meters above me near a spiral walkway. Once the surface leveled, I slid parallel to the prison as they swung their IE bonds onto the lower area. My shoulder again throbbed, but I kept moving. Twenty minutes later, I found myself in an entry from the outside to the dome via a long plankway extending from the building fifteen meters above me. Even if I could scale that wall, entering the building would be a stupid move. I was hungry and needed water, and getting stuck outside the dome would not be good either. I easily crept up the blocks and hoisted myself onto the abrasive plankway. Several square portals led into the building, but the dome opening directly boarded Triton's outside freezing surface. I ran down the rounded tube, lighted by the yellow hebons at the base, to a point where I estimated the outer prison ended and the buntas began. Mark's involvement in Jenna's tracer explosion was now plausible. I shook my head as I jogged on an angle up to the monotonous tube. Did he become aware of her activities with Alder and the cartel? I again tried to reassure myself that Mark would not kill Jenna. They may have planted that suggestion in my head just to get me to talk. At a tiny transition chamber, outer clear panels revealed a brilliant span of stars and the coating of Neptune's blue light painted the angled peaks. The inner temperature was minus four Celsius and flashed in green digits on the zip consoles, which was much better than the minus 80 outside station 32. I rummaged through the console drawer for a T-suit to face the outside environment. I was alerted to a flashing red hebon on the main panel. Maintaining a dome of this size without security was not likely. I stepped to more panel drawers to the right and found a number of maintenance tools but no pulsers. I pulled out the lower drawer. Red, webbed T-suits were stuffed inside. Although I was aware of the plummeting temperature, the outside terrain was unknown. I pulled out the suit and placed my foot in the leg. Within a minute, I had sealed the suit and knew I would have to move quickly once I stepped outside the transition chamber. The internal zip indicated I had 16 hours of air in the suit. Another system checked the suit for leaks and durability since the manufacturer 11 years ago. Once I was cleared, I opened the chamber and pushed the send button. Pressure dropped slowly, and inside the air left the chamber as the contrasting rock slopes outside came into view. The door slid, and I walked onto a blue-tinted silcoplast ramp that sloped to the walkway around the dome base. In the real, reduced gravity outside, I nearly tripped, but grabbed the side rail and regained my balance as I staggered forward. The massive blue-green planet forever mesmerized me, but so did the towering ice mountains. These angled formation were higher than the Andes Mountains I had seen in Chile on the Earth. Calvin and I had traveled 15 kilometers by tracer to the Buntas. My trip with Kirchenkov to Branson's villa and the prison was still another kilometer deeper. I had stopped at a guardrail along a rock ledge when red pulsar beams erupted on the silcoplast below. I leaped back and then slid onto the dusty surface. For a second I thought I'd ripped the T-suit. Heading across the rocky slope would not only be hazardous, but I would be an open target. I must have activated the external alarm back inside. Now I wasn't sure whether scanners were tracking me or maybe the Sarazen guards were chasing me. I slithered on my belly across the silcoplast and tucked myself under the rail. Another identical walkway below paralleled this upper path. The prodigious dome overshadowed me as I jumped onto the gritty surface a few meters below. I had opted for a trail that effectively shielded me from pulsifier, and now I made progress along the dome base. 
Above me, the massive planet looked as if it could roll onto the ice mountains. I spoke out loud in the tea suit. How did you get yourself out here, Cobb? I faced the mountains. And what does it mean, Mark? This place. The waters of oblivion. Three hours had passed since I commenced hiking the lower walkway, and the awkward tea-suit movements left me fatigued. Even though I had covered a great distance from where I would stepped outside the dome, I risked being tracked when I activated the visor beams. A graphic depiction of the dome revealed air circulation in power ducts less than a half a kilometer away. I clawed my way over the boulders and hoisted myself onto a smaller service ramp connected to an inflated extension corridor to the dome. I ran forward, but found the panel door sealed shut. I kicked the flexible red facade. Damn! I leaned against the rail and traced the edge of the dome along the mountain talus. I had eleven hours of air left in the suit, but I was disoriented outside the dome expanse. The inner door slid open. Five men in cross-stitched olive armor suits and protector hoods thrust oversized green pulsar rifles in my face. They shoved me back inside the dome, and the door clamped shut, taking Neptune's glow with it. A multicolor zip display formed an inverted arc around us. Hydrated air whooshed inside, and they ripped open my suit. An amplified voice resonated through his glossy green helmet's slotted mouth panel. We know who you are. Really? McCabe, one of the few to escape the Sauzerin. Come with us. If I don't? We have the pulsers. I nodded, but was cognizant I was stuck. I dreaded going back to that Sazerin pit. They bumped me into a small monitoring room. A few of the technicians looked up as I was instructed to ascend the spiral stairs to the gated office up top. One of them followed me up the spiral and into the office. The gate and the inner door closed. The man peeled back his hood, revealing a wily-like buzz cut. His fixed smile and whiny voice annoyed me. The hell is going on here, Smiley? I'm the only reason you're alive, Cobb. Who's Cobb? Don't get cute. His mouth cracked upward. The inspector knows who you are. And just where is dear Buck? He was tracking you, but once you got yourself in that Sarzen, you were considered dead. When he heard the escape report, we were ordered to track the service way. Listen, I have instructions to get you off moon. Off moon? What did that? Alder? Severinson? You could very easily be taken to the Sorazin. I stepped close enough to put him ill at ease. His brow creased and he pressed his lips. Or maybe it was the great Levinsky himself. Did he kill Janet Belkin? Once her usefulness had ended? If Levinsky is guilty, I'll bring him in, Smiley. He cocked his head and produced a staccato laugh. Ha <laughs> ha! You don't bring Jacob Levinsky in. He's more powerful than your stupid bureau. Now one more time. Let's go. Where exactly are you taking me? To the Matterhorn, and then off moon. Where's Calvin Glavin and Rennie Coburn? Inspector said you'd be asking that. Your compadres are both alive, he said, pointing again. That's all I'm going to tell you. And the saucer. I've told you too much. One more thing. He smiled and paused as if he did not want to answer any more of my questions. Where are the waters of oblivion? The perpetual smile dropped like the planet setting over the ice mountains. I thought about divulging the C-Zip location, but quickly realized I could not trust either Wiley or this man. I have my reasons for staying here. He removed a little green metallic pinpoint. 
Enough of your nonsense, Cobb. Outside, I have a tracer waiting. Guess I have no choice. No, you don't. Connecting tube was ringed by bulky hebons that led directly to a wide silcoplast platform overlooking the pin dot hebons scattered across the rolling Buntus landscape. A sleek blue metallic tracer, hatch open and steam venting from the side vents, was docked along three similar vessels. Two or more of Wiley's drones appeared in the hatchway, but they stepped aside as I was escorted inside. I rounded the corner with my head slightly lowered. If I was going to try anything against these mutton heads, it would have to be now. I swung my foot into Smiley's gut and plowed him into his buddy. They toppled down the ramp like a low-grav pinball and took out the third member of this wily contingent. I retracted the hatch, quickly secured it, and emerged near the tracer consoles. Once in the control recliner, I checked ship's status and then lifted the tracer from the docking platform. In the monitoring window... All three men aligned their pulsar rifles at the craft. The pulsar beams bounced off the hull. I had no intention of outrunning Wiley's forces. My only objective was to make sure Calvin had taken that C-zip from the habitat hallway. In the compartment to my right, several atmospheric propulsion packs were stored in case of a pending crash. Under internal zip control, the tracer slowly crossed the dome. I unfolded the yellow packet and jogged up front. I set the tracer destination for the Matterhorn port, and then I secured the pack over my shoulders. I placed a control visor over my head, and then checked the highlighted bunch of graphics on the clear panel over my face. Show me position, roadway 19, habitat 6. I was five kilometers southeast from that habitat. I inputted the coordinates into the pack and again studied the tracer's destination. I verbally ordered the emergency hatch open as I plowed down the aisle. The bolt snapped and the freezing Station 32 air blew inside the tracer. I gripped the stabilizing handles above the Buntus roadways and the humongous ice mountains stretched to the south outside the dome. My last thought concerned the waters of oblivion, and then I leaped into the wind-driven, frigid air. My hair furrowed in the wind as bright blue digits in the visor transparency produced a 15-minute time reference. Then a red outline map appeared. The dark tracer belly slowly moved obliquely and loudly like a behemoth toward the Matterhorn now glowing in the distance. The pack's pulse pushed me gently and steadily across the buntas as the tracer engines faded in the night. I grasped the side grips and leveled out several hundred meters above the roadway hebons. Bontefi and a few stragglers moved about, but away from the habitat where Sorrel was killed. At the hundred-meter level, I assumed manual control of the pack and pitched left over the block of habitats. I aimed toward a darker alley and slowly descended toward the rooftops. With remarkable dexterity, I merged between the habitats and into a gray, dim haze. My ears, nose, and hands were bitten by this aggravating station ice air. The brighter hebons on the main road produced a silver glare across the habitat rooftops as my boots touched down on the hard asphalt surface. I steadied myself and at once trotted down the alley, the pack still securely strapped as I neared the road. Tracking ability out here was limited, and slipping by the stragglers, even these rough-edged bonafi would be easier without the pack, but I kept it strapped to my back. Then I pivoted to the roadway corner and stuck my head around a simulated brick facade. 
A few buntafi were stationed at the next corner, and stationers lingered by a storefront several hundred meters away. I stepped onto the walkway and casually strode toward the exact hallway door where Calvin left the C-Zip. I was not sure whether they were watching me from the corner. Without checking the roadway, I scampered up the Silco-class stairs and entered the foyer. I used the T-suit arm hebon to illuminate the stairwell and went up two stairs before I turned, and then I swung the hebon into the supports where both studs converged. The C-Zip was gone and my gut wrenched. Calvin must have retrieved it, but I worried about Kurchenkov or possibly Wiley's people. I pounded the wall and shouted louder than I should have. Stupid. I leaped back to the foyer and careened out the open doorway into the freezing night. Five black uniformed buntafi raced down the walkway and I hurled myself against a side door. My sleeve hebon brightened the walls of an empty room, but I was helpless without a pulser. Outside was a prodigious brick support in the center of a fifty-foot square courtyard. I crawled out the portal onto the sand. I stayed near the sidewall and swept the hebon behind the support. Even if I got out of the buntas, I was unsure just where I would go. I should have taken the offer to leave this condemned excuse for a moon. When I saw hebons inside the habitat, I darted behind the brick support. I could no longer pan the courtyard with my sleeve hebon. Slowly as the rooms brightened, my heart pounded as I saw no way out. Hebon swept into the courtyard, and shadows formed between the wall intersections and the main support column. When they exited the portal, I flipped the visor and activated the pack again. I heard several of them yelling to men back inside. Someone was calling for my death as I spun upward into the cold air. As green pulsifier shot into the night, I bounced between the column and the building, smacking the visor. Somehow I cleared the building as random pulsar beams cut the darkness all around me. But instead of returning to the Matterhorn, I called out for coordinates for Warehouse 16, which was Jenna's destination when she procured the tracer. In my visor, as I banked left, Warehouse 16 was outlined in red, only three kilometers to the southwest. I boosted the pack output, and in minutes I approached the long building that looked like a huge, half-crushed loaf of white bread. I slowed the pack and descended on a diagonal. At one meter, I cut power and ran onto the Silcoplast sidewalk. A number of transport traces were aligned along the well-lit docking areas to the right. Inside, workers loaded containment canisters with bright green lifters. I headed up the front ramp and toured security. Reflective spheres relayed my image to some security room within the building. I flipped back the visor and realized I had no bureau card. I had talked my way in and out of situations before, but I was not quite sure what I would say now. Three oscillating red scanning beams quickly surrounded me. I could only hope Wiley's guys hadn't profiled my face. Two olive sukoed men, with white visor helmets and side pulsers, stomped through the open front doors. Sir, you have no clearance, said an older, unshaven man. I have a few questions. My name is Donald Sweeney. I work for Resources. Oh, Resources, said the kid with short blonde hair. Yes, I would like to know about Jenna Belkin. The lady's tracer blew up, he said in a gruff tone. She never arrived. I need your information, bud. Back in my room. Sorry, I uh, put the T-suit on and I forgot it. I see. 
You can't come in here without information. Look, I know. I just need to check that the contaminants are still here. What harm can that do? We don't even know who the blip you are, said the older man. He had deep wrinkles around his gray eyes. I said that I... I know what you said. I don't let people in without information. I stepped back and wished I was dealing with just the kid. I could bring this back to my contacts at the bureau. All I want to do is check for supplies for future use, and then I'll go. He shook his head at his young counterpart. For a second, I thought he'd let me in, but then he grinned. You must think I'm an idiot. Well, I, uh, I was thinking it. Let's forget the whole thing. I'll go back and get my information. When I turned, a pulse barrel pressed on my backbone. Then I heard the older man. You're going to be scanned. I don't like your looks. I don't recognize your authority. Get inside, he said, waving his pulser. Bring him to the front room. Just what I needed. More interrogation. I reluctantly crossed the speckled silcoplast under brightening hebons to a series of counters to the left. I stopped, and the young kid's pulser was at my throat. I want a jurisputer. You're lucky I don't pulse you. Brave talk. Oh, Branson. Branson. You know Branson, don't you? I would either be dead or back in the prison if they called Branson. Sam, I have some guy up here with no information asking about our resources cargo. I recognized Branson's deep accent on the zip. Scan me. Send me the image. The kid raised his zip to scan my image, but someone behind me shouted. Wait! I turned, and Calvin was descending down an open lift. This man is my concern. I raised my brow, and he made the extended teeth gesture. The kid lowered his zip. Calvin took it, and the little power-hungry officer next to him said nothing. Calvin deactivated the transmission to Branson. Good timing. Then I mouthed the next words. You have the C-zip. Of course. I'm surprised to see you alive, he said in a low voice. Then he spoke louder at both guards. This man had direct orders from Inspector Wiley. I'll take him with me. Yes, sir. They answered together and retreated up front. Calvin then patted me on the back as we entered the voluminous warehouse. How did you get out of the SARS? Wait. What about Rennie and Mark Belkin? Rennie was scanned in the lower levels of the SARS. You mean below? Why? I don't know. Alder and Severinsen sent orders out to have you disappear inside the SARS. My usefulness wore out. I must have solved something for them. Now I know why Buck Wiley wanted to get me off this wasteland of a moon. Where exactly is the C-Zip now, Calvin? In a similar arrangement. I wedged it in the fourth wine cellar, fourth beam from the opening at the Matterhorn. Good work. I began collating the data, but Wiley started snooping. I was able to find something about a man in the habitat room with Sorrel. He worked right here. He coordinated Jenna's tracer route. I knew this place was linked. His name was Norman Pushed. Yes, Pushed. I was given that name. Where do we find him? His ashes are in orbit around Saturn in the Cassini. What? Killed. His neck broken. O'Neill mentioned this push, but he couldn't put it together. So the man who helped with that shipment and set the tracer route worked here. Yes. And why stay here now? I asked as we walked across the shiny floor. Pushed may have been used. I held my hand on his left shoulder. Calvin, who do you think blew up that tracer? He pursed his lips and then broke into his jutted teeth mode. The sound etchings are trapped on that C-zip. I'm not skilled enough to retrieve them. Sounds. 
conversation could hold the key to everything. Somehow you were skiing the Sarsen. The word I have is that Alder and Severinsen both thought you would rot there till the Narval got you. I cringed at the thought of the creature. Who gave you the word? Wiley. That Hull Scraper plays both sides. What exactly did he say? Oh, he went on and on about how the Norval derived its name from the supposed landing on Tritons by A. Humans. Right, but who told him about me rotting in the Sarazen? It came from one of Phil Severinsen's men. The queasy feeling in my gut was due to Phil Severinsen rather than the creature. So, now they know I'm out. They have to know. Yes, and now they want you killed. If you had left Triton, you would have been killed. Wiley didn't know this, but he knows it now. Look, you have to get the C-Zip scans. How did you know I'd be here? I didn't. I'm here following up another lead, but I knew you escaped. It's on all the Zip channels. I was waiting for them to bring you in. That was the last word I got when I arrived here two hours ago. I was about to go back to the Matterhorn and see Wiley. Then word came down about you taking the tracer. He chuckled, and I looked him in the eye. Something funny? One thing I've noticed about you, Harry, you do all these things, things that others wouldn't do in a million years. I'll take the accolades later, Calvin. No, that's not it. It's once you do what you do, like escape from a prison with no exit or steal the tracer, you act like it's just another walk in the park. I have too many other things to worry about. Listen, where are we going? We headed down the corridor again. I counted on my thumb and fingers. So... We have the cartel, Alder, and a number of operatives. Mark and Push coordinated the tracer route. Sorrel, Pytoids. Then the waters of oblivion. Branson and Kirchenkov. I stopped and I ran my hand along my face as I pinned the hovering massive blue planet over the ice mountains. I exhaled. I need to leave Triton. I can feel it in my gut. Calvin nodded. And Nora Kachenkov didn't kill you either when she brought you to Branson. I think they told Branson to question me, and then word came down for me to be brought into the Sarazen. They sent you to Triton to find out what the evidence was. Or maybe there's a missing piece they don't know about. Or maybe they just needed to put everything in order the way it happened. They? I don't know. What about Castor? His cover was a low-level bureau operative. A worker here at the warehouse, probably to audit operations. Coordinates and tracks cargo. He was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. I would think he would tell us nothing because he knows nothing. I think Alder and Phil Severinsen killed Jenna. Or allowed Levinsky to do it. They knew it was going to happen. Linking Alder to Jenna's death would be difficult. I'm sure either he or Levinsky covered themselves and Castor knows nothing. Never assume somebody knows nothing. I walked slowly with him again. Let's talk to him, and then, how do I find Levinsky? What does he know about all this? Harry, maybe you should just bow out until this blows over. They could have you killed in a second. Unless Levinsky's been set up, too. And Calvin, this isn't going to blow over. Alder is about to become the most powerful man in the solar system. I know power. I know what people do to acquire power. But this man doesn't care about humanity. He's dangerous, and so is Severinsen. There's no place for me to hide. I have to deal with the cartel almost as an ally. That may or may not be true. My mouth hung open for the longest time. 
I was still confused. The waters of oblivion. The what? An old man, before I was sent into the Sarazen, he talked about the waters of oblivion. What is it? I have no idea what that means, but I can check. We resume walking. I could use a strong cup of Jaffron. What do you think? I'll get you one back inside. He pushed something into his zip. We entered a clear silcoplast lift. As the lift hummed, we rose above the corridor wall, and I saw a vast cargo warehouse, hundreds of colorful containments stretching kilometers along loading doors. This is where Jenna's tracer would have docked. Let me check the other catacombs back at the Matterhorn. Did Castor have an incarceration listing? No. We were soon proceeding along a long green tile corridor, and I followed him to the control offices. Hundreds of zip windows and booths were aligned in a dim hebon maze. Calvin pointed to the right, and we walked toward a series of booths. A man in a white hood and work suit turned from a swivel recliner. He popped from the recliner and led Calvin to a side room. I trailed behind. Mr. Glavin. Then he smiled at me. I'll vouch for my friend here. He removed his hood visor, and I recognized his curly black hair and ski nose. No need to. How are you, Harry? I'll be damned. Robert, you're a caster. How have you been? Caster? asked Calvin. I'm Robert Cook, Mr. Glavin. I work for John O'Neill. I approached him and set down a small zip on his console. Jenna Belkin was a friend of mine, Robert, and she's dead. Her destination was right here. Who set it up? Pushed? His dark eyes tightened. Push set the tracer route with Mark Belkin. Now he's dead. Yes. The method would suggest a cartel operative. Nora Korchenkov. Very good. But it doesn't necessarily mean the cartel. She could be working for somebody else. He shook his head. If there were, those packets got in under my nose. He stepped forward and held my shoulder. Harry. You have no idea where this is leading. I have a pretty good idea. We're all still in great danger. Why? I agreed to break my cover. O'Neill contacted me. I sent a secure address to reach him. It's in your zip, Calvin. A team of Cobalt assassins are after us. What? Cobalt? Their mission is to kill all three of us, and maybe even Wiley. Anybody who might threaten them. Are we that important? They aren't sure, and they won't take the chance. We'll have to make this meeting brief. Who ordered that team? Phil Severson sent the team. I had a real gut feeling about leaving this forsaken wasteland. What was the plan here? He looked into the corridor and then at his window panel. We were all set up to find information about Jenna Belton's death. Set up? By whom? Alder? I think so because he could have been hurt by the money trail to resources. Or was it the cartel? And why? Most of it's in Wiley's report. Something else is going on here that has either Alder or Levinsky worried, or both. What do you think? You're not going to like this, Harry. Mark Belkin may have had a pivotal part in this, and I don't know why. A greater anxiousness exploded within me. No way. He arranged the pickup right here. A small containment of supplies, food and clothing from Earth, but it could have been the ravine. It was dropped off here, 
and the tracer and the supplies went to pick up Mrs. Belkin so she could personally bring the supplies to work here at Station 32. Mark could be innocent, said Calvin, except he was there when Bernie Sorrell was killed. I don't like this pattern. So you said. Robert pointed his finger at me. I think Bernie never knew the tracer was going to blow up. He was just ordered to get the pytoids. But I'm sure he figured it out after the fact. Bernie Sorrell was used to doing what he was told. Bernie was a cartel man, and maybe Mark killed him. Robert studied the panel readings and spoke as he turned. Here's the bottom line. O'Neill feels that Alder is going to use the commissar's position to consolidate all power. First, he needs a public consensus. I nodded. Finding out his track record with resources would ruin his credibility, and the small tidbit that he slowly killed Nevis, O'Neill figured it out weeks ago that Alder and Severinsen targeted Nevis with long-range, high-energy particles. O'Neill's really not on the moon now. It's just a cover. Where the hell is he? Wait. O'Neill thinks Levinsky may have been a strong ally of Alder, as Alder consolidated power. Or not. He doesn't know. An evil genius. So if this is true, how do we stop Alder? Gentlemen, I don't know the answer to that. We're all in so deep. Now we've found answers which is the rope that will hang us. You were used, Harry, to find additional information. I'm not safe. You're not safe. We all need to leave Triton now. But I need those sound etchings and the other evidence. Harry, you never get within a dozen kilometers of that hotel. Damn, I need someone to go in there. But who? Even your communications would be caught now. I pushed my zip and saw the message from Angelique. Somehow I knew he was right. He raised his brows. Like a man heading for the gallows, he stepped into the portal span and pointed at the jagged ice mountain range, extending diagonally to the starry horizon. That is the waters of oblivion. An old man with a white beard ran up the hill just before they dumped me in the sarsen. He associated Mark Belkin with the waters of oblivion. He was vaporized right there. Robert's eyes were coated with a watery film. Walter Gosk. Walter Gosk was a worker here, and he worked with Sam Branson's company. He talked to Mark Belkin about supplies. Belkin wanted more supplies delivered to a cave within the ice of Triton. Cave? In those mountains? I thrust my hand toward the mountains. At least Mark is alive. But where? Those mountains are thousands of kilometers long. I don't know. Who would know? Maybe Branson, I doubted. I kicked the air. Well, damn. Gentlemen, this is where we depart. If you wish to get to Patno or O'Neill, you're on your own. I understand. I shook his hand. Good luck, Robert. You tell John O'Neill that I'll do whatever I can to stop Alder and Severinsen. Robert nodded and released his grip. I know you will, Harry. I know. Chapter 13 I jabbed my finger into Calvin's shoulder as we jogged toward the end of the warehouse corridor. Wiley will, will deport me from Triton, and he'll, he'll tell you it's for your own good. I don't feel comfortable returning to your tracer downstairs. If they're coming after us, it won't be just one team. The maze of ice peaks stretched to the south. We need to get Wiley over here, on the roof, get us back to the Matterhorn. Understood.
Calvin removed his zip from his belt and shielded Wiley's address. Buck Wiley. Calvin, why is this shielded? Wiley, this is Cobb. I need a tracer immediately on the top of Warehouse 16. We don't need to go back to the Matterhorn. Cobb, what do you think I run a taxi service? It's an emergency. We think we're being trailed. Forget it. Transmission ended as we neared the roof. Calvin again inputted Wiley's address, but nothing connected. We burst onto an expansive maroon slab, hundreds of meters wide. He attempted two other addresses as we ran. He'll shut us out, Harry. Wiley's a funny guy. I bet he sends a tracer. Sharp ice mountain crevices cast a silver glaze over the warehouse roof, the Station 32 roadways, and the habitats. Years might pass before we found the waters of oblivion. Ahead, the Matterhorn glowed through the far darkness. If we get out of here, I will get that C-zip to O'Neill. My gut feeling is that Wiley will help us. We paused on the slab. Let's check your tracer. If it's all clear, we go. One pulser against a cobalt team. Not the best odds. The waters of oblivion. Did my friend plot against his own wife? It's obvious, Harry. Janet Belkin stood between Alder and the commissar's office. She was about to retire. Levinsky's man, Sorrell, was right in the thick of this. I'm assuming that Alder doesn't know what's in the C-zip. Okay, I think Alder's afraid Levinsky will nail him on this, even though Levinsky was a part of Jenna's career. They were both in it. Or maybe he just used Sorrell. I don't know. I always try to look outside the obvious. And Mark being out there... I pointed to the mountains. Calvin intensely stared into my eyes. Mark Belkin is the key to all this. I think you're right, but we need to get to a safe place off Moon. Why did he arrange the tracer coming out here? Asked Calvin. I don't know, but I'm going to find out. Let me see that thing. He handed the little zip to me. I put in Angelique's address as Calvin peered over my shoulder. Are you mad? You heard what O'Neill said about Horace Valencia. I chuckled as I text. You. You've found nothing here on Triton. I'm returning to the Buntas to hide. Maybe we can meet if you come to Triton. Think this will get to Valencia, right? I don't care about him. I want the Bureau of Levinsky to think we're heading back into the Buntas when we're really en route to the Matterhorn and then on to Mars. Calvin's eyes watered in the cold. He turned from the Matterhorn. Well, he's not coming. He won't take sides. Weasel, can't take any chances. I know these teams. They will keep coming, Harry. Let's get back inside. Go below. I pursed my lips and twisted toward the Matterhorn. I thought he had come out here. Whether he's coming or not, we're sitting ducks if we stay out here too long. We retreated back inside to the lift. The air was cleaner and drier. I requested that the car stop at the third floor. I was cognizant that our only means off this moon was Buck Wiley. I tried to sort through what Robert Cook had told us. I now believe Jenna had let Mark down by her actions over the past 30 years. Those questionable dealings, until recently, had no effect on her benefactor, Felix Alder. But when Alder made his move to the commissar's office, Jenna Belkin immediately represented a possible threat to his image. I squeezed my pulsa handle and was cynical about our chance of even surviving the Cobol assassins. What of Jacob Levinsky? I stared at Calvin, scrolling through his zip. 
Levinsky was even more complicit in the marginal aspects of Jenna's career. I was still shocked that Jenna had this component of her life, her character, and her career. Alder may have used Levinsky to kill Jenna. Hence, the arrival of Bernie Sorrell and the Pytoids. Although Mark killed Sorrell, according to the C-Zip scans, I do not think Mark was in league with either Levinsky or Alder. The door spread open at the third floor. Calvin raised his pulser, and we both fanned our weapons across the deserted corridor. Once assured of our safety, I nodded, and we ran oblique to the stairs, fifteen meters away. I was edgy about the cobalt team as we trundled down the gritty, silcoplast stairs. Harry, once we get to the Matterhorn, how can we really get off this moon? Wiley, don't count on it. You won't take a stand, I tell you. Listen, I said as we stopped the doors. One step at a time. Who the hell knows how we're going to get to O'Neill? Keep the pulser hidden, but at the ready. He nodded as I peered into the lobby, where I had first entered only a short time before. A few of the warehouse workers and one-piece Sukos crisscrossed the side corridors. I spread the doors manually, and we entered the extensive area. My tracer is at the end of corridor D. Along to the Matterhorn. We walked rather casually to the large corridor ahead. Seventeen minutes. Good. I scoured the area, looking for anything odd or out of place. Just workers in here, he said, as we entered corridor D. Two men in blue sukos emerged from a room about fifty meters away. I thought the timing was more than coincidental. We had taken no more than ten steps when they planted their legs and aimed their pulses. Like synchronized divers into a pool, Calvin and I leaped left. Intense blue pulsar beams skimmed the wall and blew out the silco sheets. We scrambled to a side room. Kramer met Wiley and three of his men along the docking house hallway. Wiley's face was flatter and ashen when he faced me. Nice try, Cobb. Then he turned to Kramer. What do you want us to do? Hold him in your office until we get underway to leave this hellhole in three hours. Wiley grabbed my arm. Let's go, Cobb. I see you finally decided to take sides. Sometimes you have to. Calvin is dead because of that pea-brained Kramer. What do you want from me, Cobb? He asked as we entered the lift. I want you to get me a private tracer off this moon. You're dreaming, pal. We hurried through the Matterhorn. I was confused why Wiley dismissed his two men midway through the building. He specifically asked them to prepare one of his detention rooms while he questioned me below. Wiley gawked as the lift doors closed, and then he exhaled. Why are we heading below, Buck? Shut up. I was further baffled when he brought me to a prodigious cargo lift in the rear of the Matterhorn. He refused to answer any of my questions as the freight lift rumbled upward. His eyes darted between my zip and the lift panel. I stepped closer. You lied. Yeah, I lied. Where are we going? You know something, Cobb? You don't know when to shut up. We're going back upstairs. Why? Why, yes. I thought I'd give you a going-away party. I leaned against the wall and closed my eyes for a second as I thought about Calvin again. Just where am I going? You'll know when you get there. Real funny. And Buck, I'm not saying anything to Phil Severinsen. I needed to retrieve the C-Zip in the wine cellar. I'm going to stay here for a short time. I'm not through here. <laughs> not through? You're lucky you're alive. I need to pick up my stuff. You don't get it, Cobb. You're being taken away by force. And? Wiley pointed at me this time. 
Look, this Belkin thing, as if you didn't know, is out of control. Calvin is dead because of that idiot, Kramer. Cobb, we're not talking about a simple power play here. We're talking about force that will crush either one of us in a blink of an eye. I understand. No, you don't understand. I may not be able to get you off moon. What's the mystery? I'm getting you to Mars. Oh? Yeah, oh. Why? I have my reasons. You're a bureau guy. You don't tell everybody everything. I nodded as the lift slowed. No, you don't. I do appreciate your efforts. Then he flashed his irregular form teeth. Don't mention it. My efforts aren't altruistic, I assure you. I contemplated O'Neill's orders. Without evidence, we were all doomed. Somehow O'Neill and Patno would have to plan to retrieve the C-Zip lodged far below me. The lift slowed and Wiley drew his pulser as he faced the doors. A man with a green inner zone hebon flashed it across the open silcoplast. Wiley lowered his pulser and motioned me forward. A thin black tracer was housed inside an adjacent bay and steam hissed from the side vents. The off-ramp was already lowered and a crew was up front. Incredible. Look, Cobb, he said as he pointed. I really don't know who's inside there. I just do what I'm told. Told by whom? Wiley grinned and shook his head. Like I'm going to tell you. Go ahead, get inside. I rolled my eyes and walked across the silcoplast. The man with the green hebon retained a sullen face and nodded once as I passed. Then my zip buzzed. We'll be on Triton for five days. Can meet you at the Meriden tonight. I raised my brows and walked ahead. Angelique had texted a shorter Damocles poem into my zip. I looked ahead. Incredibly, no one was directly inside the tracer opening. I started up the ramp, glanced back, but I no longer saw Wiley. Then I looked at the zip. I text the zip back. Meet you at the Matterhorn. Damocles lives. The waiting tracer hummed as I rounded the corner, and the ramp retracted. I wandered into the empty cabin and placed my hand on one of the recliner backs. When the rear hatch opened, Jacob Levinsky, a small man with a pockmarked face and a bulbous nose, stepped in the aisle. He wore a dark suko and a white neckliner. I hadn't seen him since the Bureau questioning twelve years ago on Colony 6. I didn't expect to see you, I said seriously. Harry Cobb, how long has it been? His accent fostered an appearance of someone from an earlier time period. At least a dozen years. I think you're right. His hand was as frigid as the ice mountains, but he kept his grip. Do you have any idea what you've gotten yourself into? I think so. Good, he said, and he motioned me to the recliner. Please, sit down, have a seat. Thank you. Your friend, Mr. Colburn. Is he alive? I don't know. He escaped my compound. I grinned, and so did Levinsky as he pointed and raised his brows with open eyes. He's a clever man. I tried to get him to work for me. He has an extensive record. I'm aware of that. I'm sure you are. His brow tightened. We have a problem. We do? As I alluded to, this situation is gaining momentum. You have done what Alda wanted, and you are aware of how your friend Jenna maintained her career. First, let me say Bernie Sorrell was asked to bring pytorch to this very port. Bernie attached the pytorch to her tricep. Who asked Bernie to do what he did? Yes. I hardly expected Levinsky to confess on the spot. That is an answer I don't have. This is where it gets cloudy. 
I thought he was lying. The word I, I have is Severinsen called him. I, I doubt, doubt that. that. Why? I find it highly unlikely that a man like Phil Severinsen at his level would call somebody like Bernie Sorrell. We're talking about assuming ultimate power. They needed Jenna Belkin dead. She lived. So what? What kind of threat was Jenna? She would retire and fade away. Alder had nothing to worry about. I don't know how to tell you this. Tell me what? Look, they were being pressured by your husband. Mark? I asked and then laughed. Mark is about as humble as they come. Well, your humble friend wanted a monthly stipend. He what? That makes no sense. I stood up. They had their post-work droid bands, both of them. No debts? You could come up with a better one than that, Jacob. No, my friend. Mark Belkin risked both droid bands. He lost everything. Oh, really? I raised my brows and crossed my arms. And how do you know this? Levinsky compressed his lips. I personally know this. Someone within my organization has definite proof. Belkin wanted to live more comfortably in retirement. And he was taken into a scheme. I put my hands on my hips. Loring and a decent man who worked all his life. What's the real story? All those payoffs to Jenna. You wanted an even score. You're too smart for you. But I personally had nothing to do with this. Let me spell it out for you. You set the stage. How else would Mark react if indeed he had lost all his life's droid bands? So he threatens Alder. Why wouldn't he think he could get money from Alder, who was vulnerable? Very good, very good. If that story has any validity. Now his face was flat. What do you think? I was within centimeters of his face. Or Mark could have learned that Sorrell was hired to kill Jenna. Amazing you left the Bureau. They forced me out. It's one reason I'm getting you off Triton before all the had you killed. Really? He raised his left brow. I make a living at exploiting weakness. You, my friend, like nothing better than to see both Severton and Alda fall. That's not going to happen. Oh, it will happen. I need proof that Severinsen ordered Sorrell to set the Pytoids. You find that proof and they will fall. You can count on it. Find out what you can off Triton. Well, I send my people into the Sorazen. For what? To find out what people know about your friends slipping away to the waters of oblivion. And what will finding them prove? I asked, still not sure if he was behind all this. Severinsen and Alder are a threat to your operations. My operations are not your concern. I smiled a smile that grew wider. Maybe not. I don't trust what you're saying about the post-droid bands or about Mark. We'll see. My zip buzz. And this? I asked, holding out my zip. He glanced at the screen. The Matterhorn. What time? We're playing at the Meriden late. I will meet you earlier. What time? Angelique Willett. You set her up, too. She works for Horace Valencia. I know. She's a beautiful woman. What are you accusing me of now? She's tracking me. Levinsky shook his head. Not a bad idea, Cobb, but I think she goes for you. When I'm done with you, you can chase her. Right now, you know what I want. How do I know you didn't set up Severinsen? You don't. He motioned his operatives forward from the aisle. Where am I going? Wherever you want. You have seven days, or, or what? Maybe Miss Willard will end up in the Sorazen. I won't stand for that. 
I clenched my fist. Levinsky stared at my fist, grinned, and then I spoke in a lower voice. I need to be brought to a certain place. Oh, you do, do you? Right here in the hotel. Hey, you don't understand. You're going to Mars. He laughed and vanished around the corner. I banged my fist into the sidewall. I doubted everything he had said. Yet I wondered if Severinsen really had hired Sorrell, in conjunction with Alder, to kill Jenna. I knew we were not going to be able to make it to the room, but I also thought they could have killed us. They both rushed forward, and, and two other men converged from the other direction. You're all done, Cobb, said an older man in a deep, commanding voice. He had trimmed gray hair and a bulbous nose. I thought I recognized him, but was not surprised when he knew my true identity. Both of you, remain where you are. The Bureau's training school bubbled into my head. You, you taught recruits, and now you're heading a cobalt team. You have a good memory. That was 25 years ago. Kramer, I said. You were a bastard. I still am, he replied and grabbed Calvin's pulser. You're coming with us off this moon. You have an appointment with Phil Severinsen. Where? Shut up, he said, shoving my shoulder. Then he took the zip. I clenched my fist as we were escorted down the corridor where we first met the other two men. One of the younger team members reported our capture back to a contact via his zip. We continued, still under guard, down corridor D. I wondered if they had killed Robert Cook, but I assumed he was still alive. I have a lot of questions for you, Cobb. I'm sure you do. The doors opened and three of the team fanned into a clear silcoplast dome. The ice mountains rose like a constant reminder of Mark, Jenna, and the waters of oblivion. Where is Mark Belkin? asked Kramer, as if he were on a training session disc. If I knew, I would have solved this. I had lied, but was surprised he didn't know it. Whether they questioned us was irrelevant, because we were being brought to the master, Phil Severinsen. Whatever information Kramer garnered would obviously ingratiate himself with Severinsen. Doors opened to another vacant but shorter corridor that led to Calvin's tracer. Calvin's deep eyes revealed the anxiety lodged in my gut. We entered a holding area, and a burst of colder Station 32 air smacked my face as we approached the extended tracer ramps. I gritted my teeth. I should have handled this thing differently, and not allowed us to be taken by this team. Our boots echoed along the corrugated silcoplast ramp. Once we were inside the tracer, we were quickly seated and immediately lifted off. Kramer kept up his verbal assault. You were friends with Belkin for decades, Cobb. You're a liar. You know where he is. Why the big push to find Mark Belkin? His rock-chiseled face never changed. We'll keep at you, no matter how long it takes. Why? asked Calvin. Because we want answers. Oh, I think we know why. They use Mark. You assume too much. What did all to do? Set Mark up? Kramer's face soured and he yanked at my suko as he pointed a fully charged pulser at my head. You tell me. You were friends with him. Why did he kill Bernie Sorrell? And he did kill Sorrell, didn't he? Did he? He asked, swinging the pulse to Calvin. Unknown. But he was in the room. And how do you know that? Does it matter? He hit my cheek with his pulse butt. I was stunned, but recovered quickly. You son of a bitch. Tell me. I will tell you nothing. Him, said Kramer, pointing to Calvin. Three of them appeared and jammed Calvin into the recliner and smacked his head and chest. When I protested, 
Kramer swung the pulsar but missed. He seemed stunned that he hadn't connected, and he turned to Calvin. Smart guess. No, you know something. You have a network here. I do not. Listen to him, Kramer. He guessed it. He glanced at me and shook his head. I'm going to kill him now if you don't tell me what... I don't have any information. Calvin's eyes moistened with a rising grin. Kramer stepped back and aimed the pulsar. You heard him, Kramer. I tried to gauge his seriousness. If we knew something, we'd tell you. Ten seconds, Glavin. Then I fire. Dump your body into the bunters. Severinsen wants Cobb. You are a non-entity. Calvin cleared his throat and swallowed. Look, Kramer, we have nothing for you. Five seconds. Go to hell. Kramer's finger pushed back on the pulsar. Calvin was hit hard. His head exploded almost before I saw the pulsar beam. I ran forward as Kramer pinned the pulsar toward me. Two of the team leaped on me. You son of a bitch! You son of a bitch! They dragged Calvin's body across the tracer. I only half glanced at the bloody stump atop his shoulders and closed my eyes. The cargo doors opened up front. Kramer stomped up and personally rolled Calvin's body over the edge. I forced myself to think of Calvin back at the Matterhorn and not as this headless corpse careening toward the habitats below. When I opened my eyes, Kramer stared at me from up front. You're important, Cobb. He wasn't. You will deal with Phil Severinsen. I repeated Calvin's last words. Go to hell. His solid face wrinkled and he smiled. I plan to leave this hell, Cobb, in less than an hour. I'm going to kill you. I don't think so. He disappeared into the forward cabin and they pushed me into a recliner. Someone looped a security strap over my chest. With the image of Calvin's head blown apart still in my mind, I continued to taunt Kramer. The tracer slowed as we approached the Matterhorn. My tired eyes were fixed on the slow, blinking red and green hebons atop the roof. The C-Zip, planted by Calvin, deep within this mammoth hotel, held the evidence against Felix Alder. I wondered if Calvin had any family. I had texted Angelique about meeting her at 7 p.m. at the Matterhorn lobby, but when the tracer lifted up from atop the Matterhorn, I understood I had a problem. What's going on here? Shut up, Carb. You're going for a little trip, said one of the men up front. I need to get back to this hotel. All of Levinsky's men pointed pulses at me. I sat back in the recliner, rested my elbows on the tray, and balanced my chin on my folded fingers. The C-Zip, with the incriminating information about Alder and Bernie Sorrell, was still in the wine cellar. Fog raced across the docking bays, obscuring the red and green landing hebons along the port. I wasn't sure whether I could prove Alder or Severinsen solicited Sorrell's services. I needed to get that CZIP information to O'Neill, on Mars. Then I realized something that was obvious, and I started typing to Angelique. I was sure Levinsky was serious about sending her to the Sazarin. I need your help on a matter of the utmost importance. It involves a case I am working on, and something I need you to do in the Matterhorn. Please tell me if you can help me. I thought Angelique could easily get into the wine cellar. She would have no idea that she would be transmitting data that could incriminate the incoming commissar of the solar system. When we left the airlock, I stared like a brain-altered, revamped patient at the ice mountains. Where were Jenner and Mark and the waters of oblivion? 
Why had my friend killed Bernie Sorrell? And was Mark really out there? We gained elevation quickly, and I watched the mountains grow smaller in the portal. Then I glanced at the stars, leaned back in the recliner, and closed my eyes. Alder and Severinsen could easily have droid enhanced Jenna's droid band. Perhaps they were unnerved by Mark's demands. I still found it odd that they didn't funnel droids into Mark's bands, unless he directly threatened them. Yet, if Levinsky was telling the truth, Mark had lost everything. My zip buzzed. It was Angelique. You. Oh, the utmost importance. Can't make the dinner reservations yourself. I clenched my fist and put in my reply. Listen, please. When you get to the Matterhorn, please text me. Sending the data, complete with the sound etchings, to O'Neill was the only way to stop Alder and Severinsen. My zip vibrated and I activated the window. Change of plans. Horace is diverting to relatives in one of the hotels in orbit. We'll be back in three days. Sorry. Damn. I shouted and kicked the portal base. Time is running out. Cobb riding and slipping from the narwhal is nothing short of astonishing. Over and over, Cobb asks about the waters of oblivion. Later, he meets the head of the cartel, Jacob Levinsky, and then returns to meet Patno and his old boss, John O'Neill, on Mars. And most important is the legend of an ahuman alien sighting on Triton. More of the waters of oblivion later. I'm RPF, and I'll be back next time for episode four of The Ice of Triton on Fitting on the Air. Good evening. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.